This is the fourth in our series on the spirit of holiness and we've come to uh, these passages that uh, speak to us about uh, specifically how we understand the spirit at work among us as we gather uh, as God's people. Those two passages, the two passages that we'll be looking at, Ephesians 4 and a bit later 1 Corinthians 12, uh, are specifically speaking about uh, coming together as the church uh, gathered together on uh, on the Lord's Day to worship. Now there's uh, two possible scenarios for how the church operates that I think are just as problematic as the other. The first is where we come thinking that it's all up to us to make things happen. We think if the church is going to grow, then we need church growth principles in place programs designed by marketers to get people in. Uh, If we want to have a great worship experience on Sunday morning, then the Sunday service needs to be carefully choreographed. And if God shows up, then it's because we've done the right things to make him respond to what we do. Um, I don't think we're in danger at Bethel of having a carefully choreographed service, are we? The second scenario that I think is just as problematic as saying it's all up to us is when we say that God is present, God is sovereignly doing his thing, but we are just passive observers, like an audience watching a performance on a stage. Uh, I once, when I was uh, doing my theological studies, uh, we visited a, an Eastern Orthodox church and the priest there was, was explaining to us the architecture of the building and the nature of their services and he said sometimes no one turns up for their midweek service but he goes ahead with it anyway and he runs through the entire service and he's the only one in the building because in their theology you don't actually need the congregation to be present for God to still do what he does in the service. Now that's an extreme example, I guess, but we might easily lean in that direction if we think that because God is sovereign, because God doesn't need us, he therefore does his work without us. But Ephesians 4, our reading this morning, gives us a picture that's quite different to either of these two. thought I had it up there, but uh, if you have Ephesians 4 there, and um, you do have Ephesians 4 there in your Bibles, you might like to open to it. We're told in, we were told in verses 1 to 3 to walk in a manner worthy of our calling, to exercise the qualities of humility, gentleness, patience and love in relating to one another and to have the goal of maintaining the unity of the Spirit. So there is certainly a participation that we have in the Spirit's work in the church. We're not passive bystanders. God chooses to work through his people to accomplish his sovereign purposes. At the same time, when we look at that passage, we see that there are some givens. There are some things that are established by his sovereign work, things that are accomplished by him alone and maintained 
by him alone. Firstly, there's our calling. We are God's people not because we called on him, but because he called us. Our calling on him is a response to his calling of us. We saw that when we looked at Peter's Pentecost sermon. At the end of uh, his quotation of Joel's prophecy about the pouring out of the Spirit, it says, And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So there's the, uh, the need for people to call on him. But then he says, Repent and be baptised, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. There's the, the calling on him, repent and receive forgiveness. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. So the Lord first calls people to himself and then enabled by the Holy Spirit who is poured out at Pentecost, they call upon his name and are saved. So we don't create our calling or maintain our calling by our actions. It's the calling to which you have been called. And we are urged to then live in a way that reflects and displays that gracious action of God towards us. Secondly, Paul speaks of the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. That's also something that God has given us. He says we are to be eager to maintain it, but you can only maintain something that's already there, already in place. There's a unity that the church has because it is given by the triune God. It's found in fellowship with the triune God. We're told that there is one spirit in verse 4. In verse 5, there is one Lord, which is a reference to Jesus, the Son. And there is one God and Father. This perfect unity between the persons of God is brought home to us by the work of the Holy Spirit. And so we as his people are redeemed to be a holy people who display this loving unity. We reflect the unity of Father, Son and Spirit as we are eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit among us. Thirdly, alongside the call for us to live worthily of his calling and to be eager for unity is the promise of what the Spirit is doing among us to make sure that it happens. Verse 7 tells us, Grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. So, unpack that. What each of us is a recipient of grace. How much? How much grace has each of us been given? Well, we're told it is according to the measure of Christ's gift. Well, what's Christ's gift? Well, we've seen that the gift he gives is his spirit. Christ's gift's gift is the Spirit. Grace is God giving himself to us, his dwelling among us by his Spirit. 
That's how much grace you have received, the fullness of God himself dwelling among us and dwelling in us. What that means then is when we think about what we call spiritual gifts, they're not commodities that God dispenses. They are the Holy Spirit giving of himself in such a way that his presence and his power is manifested in and through us and as a result we then also become gifts to one another. In this way the Spirit builds up the body of Christ so that we may glorify the Father. See verses 11 and 12. He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. See how it's the people here who are the gifts. The gifts, the people are the gifts to the saints, God's people, for the building up of the body. Now, if, uh, we know the story of Acts. We can see this reflects the historical progression in these people gifts. So the apostles and prophets are those through whom the word of God came to God's people. The prophets in the Old Testament and the apostles in the New Testament. Uh, through them God gave the foundation of the truth of the gospel. He then gave evangelists to proclaim this gospel so that this apostolic and prophetic word would be heard to the ends of the earth so people may hear and call on his name and be saved. Then as the church was formed as a result of the evangelists proclaiming the gospel, he gave pastors and teachers or a a better way to translate that is uh, shepherds is the same word as pastors uh, but They're pastor teachers. They're pastors who teach and teachers who shepherd the flock. So as the church was being created and formed by the word going out by the evangelists, uh, he provided people for those churches to be shepherded and to be taught. The giving of these people to the church has a goal. It's so that the saints are equipped for the work of the ministry so that the body of Christ is built up. In other words, that this work of apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastor, teachers didn't stop in the first century. It keeps going. There is still the apostolic prophetic word that's being taught. Uh, There are still evangelists being sent out. Uh, There are still people hearing the gospel and being brought into the flock and God is still raising up pastor, teachers to shepherd the flock. So please don't think about of me or Su Kyong as pastor teachers in our role in this church as the ones doing the ministry. See how uh, God in his wisdom has given us to you the saints so that you may be equipped for the work of the ministry, so that you may continue that apostolic, prophetic 
evangelistic work in the world. So, rather than thinking spiritual gifts, we should be thinking the gift of the Spirit, through whom we're enabled to live for the glory of God, through whom we're enabled to boldly speak his word. That might require a bit of a revolution in our thinking, especially if we've grown up thinking of gifts as commodities that God dispenses. We may think that uh, we can sit down and do a spiritual gifts questionnaire to determine what our gifts or gifts are. Or we may ask each other, what is your spiritual gift? When we see that the gifts are the Spirit himself at work among us and through us, we realise that we can't put him in a box. We can't come up with a, a narrow definition for each of the gifts that he gives. Ironically, that's sometimes what we may see in uh, Pentecostal or charismatic circles where sometimes the gifts of the Spirit are only understood in terms of the kind of spontaneous, spectacular, supernatural manifestations. That can imply that the Spirit only works in spectacular, spontaneous ways and not through the things that we might be tempted to call ordinary or normal, such as reading the Bible, such as uh, gathering together in worship, such as taking communion, such as striving to love one another and, and seek the unity of the Spirit. Now, Paul confronts uh, this kind of wrong understanding of spiritual gifts, gifts as commodities, in 1 Corinthians chapters 12 to 14. He says, Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says, Jesus is accursed, and no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except in the Holy Spirit. Now, 1 Corinthians was written as a response by Paul to a letter that he'd received from them, asking for help and clarification on a number of issues that they were facing as a church. We don't know what exactly what their letter said. There's no copies of it that we, we know of. But we can kind of deduce from what Paul says the kinds of issues that were going on in the Corinthian church that they had asked him as an apostle to direct them in. Some of the issues that they had would make our hair curl. There were problems like divisions. There was sexual immorality celebrated in the church. There were lawsuits between Christians in the church. There was marriage breakdown. There was participation in idolatry. There were clashes between men and women. There was an abuse of Holy Communion where people were getting drunk and overeating and others were missing out. And there were some who were even denying the resurrection. Although... Looking at that list, they're not just first century problems, are they? 
That list actually seems quite relevant in many ways to uh, the modern church just as much as it did them. And Paul makes a very sad statement in chapter 11. He says, In the following instructions I do not commend you, because when you come together it is not for the better but for the worse. In the context of what was happening as they gathered as a church, he speaks about how they practised Holy Communion and then he moves on to, in chapter 12, to speak of spiritual gifts. The first thing for us to be aware of is that that phrase, spiritual gifts, in verse 1, is simply the word spirituals in the Greek. It means spiritual things. It could mean gifts, it could mean people, it could mean practices. It was a word that was widely used in the culture of the day and was uh, common in the pagan religions that were there in Corinth. And these pagan religions involved uh, the experience of all kinds of mystical and ecstatic rituals. They would go through these rituals in order to climb the spiritual ladder and to reach some form of enlightenment. They believed that as you climbed your way up this ladder, you as a person became more spiritual. You were able to have insight into spiritual mysteries that those who were below you hadn't yet been able to understand. That kind of thinking isn't too dissimilar from modern ideas about spirituality. We may not express it in those specific ways, but it's a thinking about spirituality that's been actually influenced by some of those ideas as well as from uh, the Eastern religions. I said at the beginning of this series that the idea of spirituality means that I have the capacity in myself to tap into the spiritual realm through ritual, through meditation, through philosophical thinking. And that's the way that the world thinks of being spiritual. I am spiritual but not religious, is what many people will say. But the Bible talks about a truly spiritual person as someone who simply lives in right relationship with the Holy Spirit. Someone who's filled with the Spirit, who's directed by the Spirit. Someone who is worshipping the Father through the Son in the power of the Holy Spirit. And this is the change that Paul wants the Corinthians to make as they think about how the Spirit was at work among them. So he uses this word spirituals to start off with, probably because that's the word they used in their letter to him. But then he changes the vocabulary. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in every one. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. See how he's moved away from the language of spirituality and instead uses the language of 
gift. He's saying to them, you should think of these spirituals as gifts, gifts given by the person of the Holy Spirit, not as an expression of your personal spirituality and not as a commodity, a thing that God dispenses from heaven. Not only that, he wants them to see that this ministry of the Spirit is not just the Spirit on his own. It's a Trinitarian action, like we saw in Ephesians 4. We see that there are varieties of gifts given by the one Spirit. There are varieties of service and they're performed by the same Lord, Jesus And there are varieties of activities or work empowered by the same God, the Father. So it's the Spirit who gives. It's the Lord who serves. And it's God the Father who works powerfully. And then to make the point even clearer, he then uses this other phrase, the manifestation of the Spirit. That means the Spirit is already here. He's already among us and his presence is made known to us as he manifests himself through each one of us in different ways. So again, the gifts are not things that the Spirit dispenses. They are the Spirit himself making himself visible in various ways. What did this look like for the Corinthian church? For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. Now we don't need to see this list as prescriptive for every church and we don't need to see this list as an exhaustive list. These are the only gifts that the Spirit gives. This is the only place in the New Testament where this exact list occurs because Paul is not telling the Corinthians what gifts they should have but he is listing the gifts they do have so that he can then instruct them on how to exercise them orderly and in love. When Paul writes to the Romans, he gives a different list. He lists prophecy, serving, teaching, exhortation, generosity, leadership and acts of mercy. It's worth noting that the one thing that those two lists have in common is prophecy. The primary sign that the Spirit is on us, that all of God's people will prophesy. So the question for us as members of the body of Christ is not so much what are the spiritual gifts and how can I get the ones I want, Because in verse 11 we're told all these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as 
he wills. Rather, our question should be, how may I exercise whatever the Spirit gives me in a way that honours the fact that this is a manifestation of the Spirit himself who dwells in me. My body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. So how do I exercise, how do I show that in a way that honours him and is exercising love towards my brothers and sisters? It's entirely possible for people to do all the things in Paul's list of the gifts of the Spirit without them actually being true manifestations of the Spirit. Because we see in the opening verses of chapter 13, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have and if I deliver my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. Now what Paul is doing here is he's listing some of the things that the Corinthians thought made them spiritual people. And then he takes them to the extreme. So he says, I may speak in the tongues of men, a spiritual gift, but what if I can also speak to angels? He says, I may have prophetic powers, but what if I can also understand all mysteries and knowledge? He says, I may have faith, but what if my faith is so great I can move mountains? And I may have the gift of generosity, but what if I go even to the extent of giving up my own body to be burned? At the time this was written, the emperor was taking Christians and Jews and he was burning them. That's the way he executed them. He, lit them. he covered them in tar and lit them up as torches in his garden. So how more spiritual could you get than to not just give what you have to the poor, but to actually be a martyr for Jesus? Does that make you super spiritual? This is a portrait here of someone in their eyes who would be super spiritual, the kind of person with their spirituality that they would aspire to be. But then he demolishes that portrait. He says, if I do all of that but without love, I'm a noisy gong, a clanging cymbal, I would be nothing and I would achieve nothing. We can't claim to be exercising the gifts of the Spirit unless we are also displaying the chief fruit of the Spirit, which is love. If we hold Paul's description of the nature of love in chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians alongside the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, we can see that while they're not identical, they're similar enough for us to say that the qualities of love that we're called to express 
are simply an expression of the character of the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit. So don't desire any of the spiritual gifts unless you first desire the Spirit himself to be in you, to be filling you, to overflowing, to be giving you a fruitfulness which is the fruitfulness of love. Now we could say a lot more about all of this, including what the actual gifts were that the Spirit gave the Corinthian church Uh, what they meant, uh, whether or not we see them manifested in the church in the same way today and what they would look like for us. And if the Spirit, who is sovereign, who gives gifts as he wills, chooses to give those gifts to us, then we should be ready to receive them with thankfulness. But as I said, the list is neither exhaustive nor prescriptive. We need to be looking with open eyes to see, to discern how the Spirit is manifesting himself today through us because it will be different for us just as it was different between the Roman church and the Corinthian church. It will be something unique that the Spirit will give us as Bethel Church at Norwood in the 21st century. His goal in all that he does is not to give us a great experience or to wow us with demonstrations of his power. But whatever the Spirit does among us, it is to enable us as we travel together towards the goal that the Father has for us, we have our eyes fixed on Jesus in all of that. Let's finish back in Ephesians 4. Verses 15 to 16. We know that the primary sign of the Spirit is speaking God's word and we know that the primary fruit of the Spirit is love. So it shouldn't be a surprise to hear Paul say, rather speaking the truth in love. We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Speaking prophecy, speaking the truth is prophecy and love, the fruit of the Spirit. So if we are speaking the truth in love, that is a manifestation of the Spirit among us. And his aim is that we may grow up. We may no longer be children, we may become mature men, not meaning we all become male, but there's the image that he uses. I want, he says, I once was a child, I thought like a child, I thought, but now I'm mature, I'm a man, I think differently. The Spirit's goal is to bring us into maturity, to make us more like Christ. More and more, as the Spirit manifests himself in us and through us, we will reflect the glory and the beauty and the grace of the Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we ask that we might know the manifestation of your presence among us.
in whatever way you choose, whatever way you will, in your sovereign grace and goodness towards us. We ask that we might be open to the things that you say and do among us that might be new or unexpected. We also ask that we might be uh, willing and have open eyes to see the way that you are at work through us in the things that we've always been doing, gathering together, worshipping, singing, hearing your word read and taught. And in so many other ways, we ask that uh, we might know uh, your power and your presence among us. As you open our eyes and show us Jesus, as you take all that is of his and declare it to us, we ask that you will enable us to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, that as we move forward towards the goal that you have for us, we might do all that we uh, all that we do and say all that we say to the glory of God the Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.